0: Welcome to the Codecast Podcast, real world insights for your daily medical coding and billing processes. And now, here's your host, Terry Fletcher. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Codecast Podcast today. My name is Terry Fletcher. As you can hear, my voice is a little better. I'm still kind of just at the end of my uh, chest cold and cough, but. Um, At least I'm not struggling every five minutes and going into a coughing attack. So I appreciate the well wishes I got from last week. Uh, It was definitely rough, but this week I'm on the upswing. So not quite that soothing voice you all tell me I have, but at least, you know, I'm working hard to get better. So this week, my topic actually is a little bit of a left turn, but something that I've been dealing with quite a bit. And this is on prior authorizations, and I know it's been a hot topic uh, in the healthcare news lately, mainly because a lot of people actually don't know what it is, and also they call it different things like pre-authorizations and pre-certifications, and that's why when you see PA, we're not talking about physician assistance, we're talking about prior authorization, which really refers to a requirement by many health plans, and it's for patients to obtain approval of a healthcare service or medication before the care is provided. What this actually does is allows the plan to evaluate whether care is medically necessary and otherwise covered. And standards for this review often, and this is where the downfall is in my opinion, it's developed by the plans themselves based on generic medical guidelines, of course, costs, that's, that's always about follow the money, utilization and other miscellaneous information. The process for obtaining prioriz- prior authorization also is different from insured to insurer, so that's why it's such a problem, because you have so much clinical and administrative information that you have to know prior to treating the patient. I'm seeing that a lot of denials, saying you didn't get prior authorization, have to do with assumptive coding. So, for example, we think the patient's going in for a routine heart cath, nine three four five eight. But actually they went in for heart cath with injections into saphenous grafts and also possibly right and left combined heart cath, which would be nine, three, four, six, one. So remember, one of the things that prior authorization um, kind of relies on is that something is inputted in the into the computer by their customer service department or wherever you get your PAs from. And then they match it with the claim submission that comes in. And if it doesn't match, they say, oh, you didn't get prior authorization. Unfortunately, you don't have coders working in that particular space, a lot of times with the payer side. And so it can not just um, deny the service once you bill it, but it also can delay care for patients. And it can result in negative clinical outcomes if these administrative burdens don't get cleaned up. Now, there's a lot of other things that are happening right now. But what I have found, and I've been doing some research on this, And there is a company out there called KFF that's an independent source for healthcare policy, research, polling, and news. And they had a recent report from HHS office of inspector general that found that 13% of prior authorization denials by Medicare advantage plans were for benefits that should have otherwise just been covered by Medicare. So straight Medicare, you notice we rarely, unless it's DME, have to get a prior authorization. But 99% of Medicare Advantage enrollees are in plans that require prior authorization for some services. And 84% of those enrollees are in plans that apply prior authorization to certain mental health services. So I know people don't feel that that's appropriate. And mental health services are tricky because I, for example, I recently went for a well check visit with my physician And everything was fine. Everything's good. And they said, you know, you don't need to be seen again for a year. I'm like, great, thank you. But then the survey after the fact wasn't how was your visit or anything like that. It was, were you seen within 15 minutes? Were you able to get the visit a schedule that you wanted. And then it went into 10 questions about, did they ask you if you're depressed? Do they ask you if you have any mental health issues? And I kept saying, no, 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 because it was not applicable for me. And they kept saying, well, did you get offered treatment? Well, if I said, no, I don't have that, then why would they offer me treatment? So it's almost like there's a push for mental health services and trying to create mental health issues. And so I'm not saying that it's not out there. I'm I'm happy that there's more coverage for it, absolutely, when it's medically necessary. But to create services that may not exist is, you know, kind of the power of suggestion is kind of unnecessary. And that's what's going to not only inflate costs, but it's going to continue with these um, prior authorizations for unnecessary services. And so this is where you, you kind of have to see where the balance is here. So the OIG recommended and HHS agree that uh, Medicare should take a closer look at the appropriateness of clinical criteria that Medicare Advantage plans use in making coverage determinations. Also, HHS is looking to um, at, looking at commercial plans and their coverage clinical coverage criteria to figure out, you know, what are you trying to figure out here without having some kind of um, national standard. So the use of health plans on what they call homegrown clinical criteria has definitely come under scrutiny. And first of all, I'm in California and California is known to just, I don't know, they call them renegades or cowboys out here because they tend to just do whatever they want. And for example, California does now prohibit plans from using their own clinical criteria for medically necessary decisions. So they require commercial insurers instead to use criteria that are consistent with general accepted standards, medical standards of care and are developed by a nonprofit association for relevant clinical specialty. And I think that's important because again, not for profit. So there's no, you know, bargaining tools behind the scenes. And then now that doesn't apply to self-insured employers or or employer sponsored plans, but it is for, you know, any kind of uh, insurance that somebody could just go out and buy. And then also they're trying to, and I should say they, the Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equality Act requires commercial insurers, employer-sponsored plans, um, and certain Medicaid plans to document the use of PAs for both medical and behavioral health-covered services. But they also have to provide a comparative analysis that includes what's the rationale and evidence that, the, the, that prior authorization has to be applied for. And so, you know, Congress is still working on this, but... I know that a lot of federal and state level has increasingly required plans to try and eliminate prior authorization for specific behavioral health treatments due to some parity violations. So setting the standards for prior authorization, and this is kind of what's going out there right now that you should be aware of a lot of prior authorization information in the news. Sorry, if you're hearing a click, I am having a little trouble today with the coughing boy, this thing just lingers. So the affordable care act, you should know Prohibits use of prior authorization related to emergency care. Okay, so the, here's some of the the, the uh, laws or published regulation that you can you know abide by. Some states have moved to ban prior authorization for certain again behavioral health care. New York, for example, um, pre- prohibits the use of prior authorization during the first four days of an inpatient admi- admission for a mental health condition. I know f- two other states do that. Um, Michigan recently passed a law requiring use of standard standardized prior authorization methods and tr- uh, transparency on how is it created. Now here's the thing that several states have adopted and or are considering adopting, and I really like this, and that's what they call the gold card. And those are gold card laws that would require health plans to waive prior authorization uh, so for services ordered by providers with a good track record of prior authorization approval and no blips or, you know, outlying issues when it comes to that prior authorization um, for on their you know, profile. So for those of you out there that actually participate in prior authorization, and it's very, I know, administratively cumbersome, here's really what they're looking at, just so you can understand the process. And there's actually now a certification for prior authorization, kind of knowing the ins and outs of it. I'm actually considering taking that certification. Not that I don't have enough letters after my name already, but I just find it so intriguing, I guess, is the word, just knowing what goes on behind the scenes because it really starts with medical necessity. Being medically necessary means that you really do need the service, the the patient or or drug um, that the provider is prescribing. So when insurers are trying to determine if criteria for medical necessity is being met, what factors do they look at? Well, they try to look at whether the treatment is recommended for the patient situation now, According to up to date research backed evidence, they're also trying to make sure, and this is the big one, that the service is not being duplicated. So, for example, if let's say a patient has lung cancer and they may be seeing more than one specialist, you know, the the oncologist might order a test, um, maybe a CT scan for the chest, not realizing that the primary care doctor already ordered that two weeks ago. So, in that case, the insurer would not pre authorize a second CT scan. Into a scan into unless it confirmed that the oncologist saw the scan you had two weeks ago or the prim- primary care and still thinks you need to have another one. So a lot of times the, and we call it interoperability, they don't work together. And so that's where I'm hoping that we're going to have a little bit more integrating of our systems when it comes to what does the primary care do prior to the referral versus what do the specialists do? And a lot of duplication is out there. Now, cost is always a big deal, okay, and mostly with drugs, and so insurers want to see if it makes financial sense on their part, of course, for you to have a surface or treatment, but a lot of times there's an out-of-pocket or share of cost for the patient too, so the procedure or drug should be the most economical option for the patient. So, for example, imagine that drug C and drug E both treat a patient's condition, but drug C is cheaper and drug E is more expensive. But your healthcare care provider prescri- uh, prescribes drug E and your health insurance plan may want to know why drug C won't just work just as well. So if your provider can show that drug E is a better option for you, even though it costs more, it might get preauthorized. But if there's no medical reason or necessity why the more expensive drug should be chosen over the cheaper drug, the health plan may refuse to authorize it. And you've probably seen that with generic versus name brand or off, you know, name brand drugs. Um, Some insurance companies require step therapy in these situations. You've probably also heard of called um, uh, cascading claims. Step therapy means that they'll only agree to pay for the more expensive drugs. So drug E after you've tried drug C and it hasn't helped, which kind of sucks because you don't want to be putting so many chemicals in your body just to see if it works. I, I don't like that concept. But that is a concept that has applied to other medical procedures. So, for example, think about continuing to upgrade again where it cost. So a plan may not agree that an MRI is appropriate unless your provider pr- proves um, that an X-ray is not enough. So there has to be at least a checks and balances there. And your uh, provider or your insurance provider needs to make sure that ongoing or recurrent service is actually helping the patient. So um, here's another example. Suppose that the patient's been having physical therapy for three months and the provider is requesting authorization for another three months. Well, unless there's documentation that the physical therapy is actually helping the patient, why would they authorize an additional three months um, unless you can show that, you know, you're making slow or the patient's making slow, but measurable progress. If there's not any progress or the PT is making the patient feel worse. And I've seen that in audit records I've audited, then the health plan may not agree to authorize any more sessions until it has a conversation or a correspondence or communication with the healthcare provider to understand why they think three months of, you know, PT would be, um, necessary and will help the patient. So what kind of the point of me kind of bringing this up the whole time is that, you know, again, prior authorizations, they're not re- necessarily required for emergency services. There wouldn't really be time to request and receive it. And a lot of times retro authorization is what's really used there. But when your a physician is trying to prescribe a medication or there's especially drugs that require or, or that have serious risks or side effects, or that carry a high risk for misuse or addiction, or are used for cosmetic reasons and not for treating a condition or that have a cost differential. So there's, especially if there's a lower cost, um, you know, bilateral drug that can, um, that can also be used instead. That's where you're going to see a lot of required prior authorizations. Now I have noticed that many plans have taken off the, uh, prior authorization rule for screenings like colon cancer screenings and, Um, you know, mammograms and things like that, which is great. I love hearing things like that. But if you're in the business of having to get prior authorization, you want to talk to your staff, your providers, your mid-levels, and make sure that they have some kind of medical necessity statements available. Now, they have to be specific to a patient. Not one size does not fit all. But there are certain services that do require prior authorization that are commonly Um, Routine, So a lot of expensive diagnostic images above and beyond x-rays and ultrasounds like MRIs, CTs, PET scans, um, a lot of durable medical equipment such as wheelchairs, etc. Physical and occupational therapy. Also, if you are a practice that does PT and OT referrals, you want to make sure that they're also doing in person. I'm seeing so many telehealth PT and OT and patients are not getting better or they're not going And I can't tell you how much I hate therapy over the, you know, telehealth. It's not helping. And patients are saying, you know, my husband doesn't have the strength to decide if I'm getting better or determine if this is working or the parent can't, you know, get the child to do what they want. They need to get back in, in person, Um, home health services. And a lot of times this is done a lot by nurses, but make sure you know that patients sometimes want that, but is it really necessary? And then non-emergency surgery. So as long as it's not something that is um, a screening or or a screening anything, I should say those aren't necessary surgery, but they are procedures, then there does tend to be a prior authorization for many surgeries. Now, what you Medicare Part A and B generally does not require prior authorization. Medicare Advantage plans do require prior authorization, but federal government finalized new rules in 2023. So this year saying that Medicare Advantage plans have to streamline this process, minimize how much they do this because they can't prevent enrollees from receiving um, timely medical care. And so it's important that as somebody who's in charge of prior authorization, tell your office, make sure you tell everyone in your office and you should have a meeting about this. You need to get organized. Make sure you're keeping track of due dates prior to surgery. Make sure all paperwork you need is filled out, accurate and complete, and you have a backup plan if it is denied. And also follow up with the patient. You don't want to let things go because now there could be a liability issue there as well and continue, you know, prior authorization requirements that you're not aware of maybe could hinder, you know, their progress in place and could have additional administrative um, burdens on your practice. And so the biggest thing is getting organized, have a plan if you're denied making sure you know what the paperwork has to be filled out, keep track of dates when you schedule a procedure or a surgery or anything, and then who's responsible to make sure that that authorization is handled. And it always seems to follow back to money and get as close as you can to the codes that need to be authorized. And then also look to your plans websites. They've made a lot of announcements Aetna, United healthcare. A lot of them have made announcements in the last, I would say three months that they've eased up on preauthorizations for a lot of routine services. So you want to have a list of what those are so that your PA staff is not, um, they are not spinning their wheels for things that didn't need to have to be um, preauthorized. So my coding question today has to do with smoking cessation, the 99406 uh, code. So Kind of funny when I was looking at some of these codes, when I look at some of the documentation, I've had a question on this recently, and it said, can we bill a smoking cessation code that the note just says discuss with the patient the need to quit smoking? The answer is no. So there's a reason why these um, extra services to an EM are timed. And you have to have an assessment or a checklist on a patient who smokes. And then they have to also agree that they're going to quit. Remember, it's smoking cessation counseling. So, you know, amount smoked, smoke, degree of dependence, patterns of smoking, reason for smoking, reason for quitting, um, what worked and what didn't work. Are there any other uh, are there any other medical problems um, or meds the patient's taking, current interest in quitting and then current confidence in being able to quit And the provider that's following them also has to have a plan that they are following them to come back and say, okay, this is what we're going to do. This is how much you've progressed. Make sure you're um, notating your progress. Otherwise, you you can't bill for it with just a simple statement. I see that happening way too many times. So be very, very careful with that. Our coding question was brought to you today by the AAFP, American Academy of Family Physicians. Health information for the whole family. Again, from the American Academy of Family Physicians. You can follow them on X, formerly Twitter, at family doctor, or follow them FamilyDoctor.org or go to AAFP.org. So my personal tidbit this week, you know, we are in football season so that means I'm back to my WTF with the football podcast as well so check that out at StillCityUnderground.com. that's the website that it sits on on all platforms if you're interested in what's going on with the NFL that's my kind of my side hustle I love it so I love talking about football and so hopefully I'll see some of you on there so far in my fantasy leagues I'm three and one so I have four leagues that I'm on I know that's a lot to to go over, but um, three I won last week and one I didn't. Um, my Steelers, they didn't start off so good, so hopefully Monday Night Football will be better, and uh, by the time you hear this aired, I'll know if I've won or lost. And so everyone, make it a great day, make it a great week, and thank you for listening to the CodeCast podcast. For more information on medical coding, billing, auditing, and compliance, including how to hire Terry, follow Terry on Twitter at terrycoder one or visit her website, at www.terryfletcher.net. Podcast producer Joe Kuzma. Music producer Assassin Music.